0: You are listening to the sermon stream of the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.comslash sermons. Tonight we're going to be looking at the four views of Jesus, the, the way the gospel is given to us in, in four uh, different forms. Uh, We have the three that we often call the synoptic, which means seeing together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John's gospel, which is also often referred to as the fourth gospel. What we'll find is we have uh, a lot of similarities because it's people who were largely together telling a story of the same person. But if you saw the dramatic events uh, that they saw, these world-shattering things and, and just really the unbelievable miraculous things they saw there would be so much uh, to write and there would be so many different details that could be offered uh, that we find that uh, the four gospels uh, each uh, addressing a little bit different audience with a little bit different purpose from uh, the pens of four different men even though that uh, the ultimate author and the source behind them all is the same inspired uh, word of god through the holy spirit uh, we find uh, For independent yet confirming and agreeing uh, accounts, uh, the places where people try to find conflicts between the four Gospels. It's almost always an effort done in bad faith. And when it's not done in bad faith, it's done from a lack of understanding uh, or from a a partisan uh, position. So if we have uh, four people who see the same thing, they're likely to describe different aspects of it. And to an untrained person, that might seem to be contradictory. In fact, they're they're most often complementary, and the the Gospels, with a fair reading, are never contradictory. Now, if we had four humans reporting the same thing, uh, somebody might make a mistake, or somebody might think that they had all the information when they they really didn't. And so there might be uh, contradictions. Uh, there might be uh, problems. But in the Gospels, uh, if we give it a fair reading, and especially if we'd all look to see uh, how these things will fit instead of striving at how they won't fit, uh, we we don't find too much trouble at all. It sort of reminds us a bit uh, in some of these people looking for controversy and looking for contradictions. It reminds us of fans of opposing sports teams who see the same play and maybe even see the same replays. And they come to exactly different conclusions about what the play meant, about did that offensive lineman hold or not? Did he actually move before the ball uh, or not? Uh, did he step on the line or not? And sometimes even with uh, multiple camera angles and reverse angles, and I'm, I'm young enough uh, to remember, or maybe I'm old enough to remember, when on uh, football telecast, they'd say, now we're going to look at this from the reverse angle and they would show us from the opposite side of the field the same play. And oftentimes that's highly enlightening to see it from the other side. But even with all that and multiple camera angles, there still gets to be controversy, especially among sports fans, as to what exactly they all saw. And they can't agree with what they all saw, except that there's this thing in common. If your team is involved in the situation, you nearly always see that in a way that helps and benefits your team. The other team is always sure to see more penalties against your team than the refs ever saw. And if the refs were only fair, they would call it that way. Of course, in your team, uh, you would never see a penalty against them, but you spot all the penalties against the other. And so what we find oftentimes in biblical interpretation, in people who supposedly are scholars, supposedly with a scholarly detachment and a, uh, an academic view, Uh, what we'll find is that they will approach uh, the Scripture in the same way, and they will tell us that there is uh, contradiction. Other scholars, though, will tell us there's not enough contradiction. It's obvious that they were copying off each other. It's obviously that they colluded with each other. So one set of scholars say they contradict, another say they collude. But most of the time, the people who say that, uh, like the the sports fan, uh, they have a rooting interest. There's a reason why the referees at sporting events have to wear different colored uniforms in either one of the teams. Imagine if, and uh, well, at 11 o'clock on Saturday morning, Oklahoma is going to play K-State. Imagine if the referees all wore red. Now, some K-State fans may feel that it's that way already, but some Oklahoma fans might feel that the referees are all wearing purple. Well, just imagine if they actually did wear purple or did wear red and did wear their rooting interest and had a rooting interest on their shirts. Well, when it comes to looking at the Gospels, so many times our modern scholars have that kind of partisan and rooting interest. Now, I have to say, it might also be that we as believers, that we might have a partisan and rooting interest in wanting to just gloss over problems with the Gospels, or wanting to look over things that the scholars say are really troublesome. I don't find that to be the case. I hope that's not the case. But I will say um, at least in my mind, tie always goes to the credibility of the gospel. But uh, we need to be diligent seekers. We need to find out what the gospels actually say. Most of us, if we know the gospels with any familiarity, most of us will come to decide we have a favorite gospel. We like the point of view. Uh, We like the point that the author is trying to stress, uh, even though the other authors have good points that they're trying to stress and they have uh, points of view as well. But we might find that one really particularly agrees with us. As a young man, and when I first began to study uh, the scriptures, the gospel that I always liked to go to first, my favorite gospel and the one I did the most, spent the most time in in devotional reading and in, in study, uh, was always the gospel of Matthew. And to me, I just, I really liked the way that it presented things, particularly uh, the constant appeal uh, to fulfillment of prophecy, that the Gospel of Matthew ties the Old Testament and the New Testament together in a way that others do not do. Uh, it's certainly there in other Gospels, but it, it is explicit and it's part of the main point, the fulfilled prophecies in the Gospel of uh, Matthew. And so what we find is in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, this continual uh, Jewish world, the Jewish world that the uh, Savior lived and walked in, the constant discussions uh, based in uh, the Old Testament, the the constant appeal to the Old Testament, and uh, the, the the proof that Jesus uh, was all that they uh, were looking for. 55 uh, direct quotations from the Old Testament, 75 allusions to Old Testament passages. Just uh, Matthew is nearly an Old Testament book. Uh, one thing I'd might pause at this point and talk about is the the authorship, or at least the uh, in brief, the authorship of all these Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the, the titles of these Gospels from the earliest days uh, of the church, even though unlike the letters of Paul, uh, they don't have opening statements that say, uh, I write this. They, they don't have uh, the direct names attached. And the other thing they don't have is they don't have uh, in any of the Gospels any hint that this Jewish world in which uh, the Messiah worked and labored, there's no hint that that world is in, it has gone away or is really in much uh, uh, threat uh, or is uh, something to be lost uh, or something that has been lost or something to be mourned. Uh, but uh, we're told by liberal scholars that the Gospels are were written a uh, uh, hundred years after the time of the things of Jesus. Uh, we're told that the gospels were written long after the people who purportedly wrote them were dead. Yet there's no mention of the great tragedy of the end of the second temple, the, the, the great loss of Jewish society. Uh, there is, in fact, uh, uh, as we read the gospels, it seems like Jerusalem is still ever with us. And as we read the gospels, it seems like it'll never go away and thus when we come to prophecy which says hey this is going to go away soon this is going to this is going to go away in this generation uh we find that shocking i think just as the people back then did because there just seems to be no hint in the gospels in especially or even the rest of the new testament that such a passing was going to occur which i think is strong proof that these things were written before the destruction of jerusalem uh, there's some debate among uh, b- believing scholars, and I don't mean the skeptics here, I mean just believing scholars, there's some debate among believing scholars as to what is the earliest book of the Bible that was written. Uh, the, the most likely candidate, the one that, the, the, the candidate that comes forward the most, uh, is 1 Thessalonians, the first letter of Paul. But it's quite possible, and it, there's becoming more evidence that the first uh, book of the Bible that was written may actually, in fact, have been Matthew that Matthew, uh, a gospel uh, for the Jewish people who lived where the gospels took place, among people whom the gospel took place, uh, that certainly that was written before AD 70, because again, there's no reference, even a hint of that world having ceased to be that the gospel of Matthew might have been the first book written. And the audience to whom it was written was still there in place in the same places where the things of the gospel took place. And so Matthew starts with 42 generations of Jesus' genealogy. It just, like, think about how much uh, Ancestry.com could make if they could tell people, uh, sign up for our service and we'll get you the first 40, uh, or the latest 42 generations of your genealogy. 42 generations of the genealogy of Jesus. That's how we start the gospel. And so we know firmly his descent through David. And uh, of, of Abraham. And we have this uh, constant uh, telling of the prophecies. As someone uh, once uh, summarized of Matthew, it was a gospel for the Jews by a Jew about a Jew. So the prophesied Messiah has come to the people. Again, I like that summary. The gospel of Matthew for the Jews by a Jew, about a Jew. Forty passages are directly quoted in connection with both major and minor events in the life of Christ. And so we start in chapter 1, verse 22, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And of course, we know that's Isaiah seven fourteen that the virgin will be with child. And then over and over, so we go to chapter 2, we find this, the chief priest uh, told Herod uh, when they were asked when the Magi came about the uh, birth of of the king, that that would be in uh, in Bethlehem, as it says in uh, Matthew 2 and 5, for thus it was written by the prophet. And of course that was the prophet Malachi. Just a little bit later, when Herod decided to kill all the children there, and uh, the innocent ones were killed, so that could, he could try to ensure that he killed the future king, it says that's in fulfillment of Hosea chapter eleven verse one, uh, as it was uh, spoken of uh, by. And this is where we one of the few places we have a, a spelling error of consequence. It says by Jeremiah the prophet in the New Testament, although we know it was Hosea, uh, the Hebrew. N- names for those two prophets are basically one-letter difference. So that, that's one of those misspellings that actually matters. But uh, it's Hosea 11, verse 1, which talks about Rachel weeping for her children. Uh, we find then uh, John the Baptist comes, and it was he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. The ministry of Christ begins in Capernaum, uh, by the sea, in the regions of Zebulon and Naphtali. You think, well, why mention Zebulon and Naphtali? Because that, which, that fulfills what was spoken of, again, by Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah specifically mentions uh, Zebulon and Naphtali. I think Zebulon and Naphtali only get a mention in the New Testament quoting that prophecy, but it's the exact spot where Jesus began his work. So then how Jesus did his work? He did, he did uh, his teaching often by parables. And Jesus spoke to them in parables, and without a parable he didn't speak to them, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the prophet, saying, I open my mouth in parables, and I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. So that's in Matthew 13. It's quoting Psalm 78. As we get closer and closer to uh, the uh, point of the gospel, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ, uh, we find more and more uh, things quoted as being by prophecy, uh, Jeremiah's mention that it will be uh, 30 pieces of silver. Uh, from Jeremiah 32 is mentioned in Matthew 27. The dividing of the garments in Matthew 27, 35, uh, that occurs, it says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots from Psalm 22. Actually, you can. there's a lot of detail from Psalm 22 in the crucifixion, but Matthew points out Points directly to that that song, and uh, the words on the cross as well, uh, Matthew twenty seven forty six, uh, Eli Eli Lama sabachthani. Why did he say those words? Well, it uh, it was uh, quoted directly from Psalm twenty one, and so and say we have Matthew and uh, the very you know the, the very clear connection of the Old Testament prophecies to our Messiah who brings us the New Testament. Uh, The New Covenant, uh, a gospel for Jews, by a Jew, about a Jew. Now, the the Gentiles are certainly in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Jesus speaks about them uh, coming from far away to to sit at the table with the patriarchs in the kingdom. Uh, In chapter 8, the hope that the Gentiles have in Christ in, in the Messiah, chapter 12, Certainly the Great Commission, uh, which Matthew gives us uh, it to go to all creation in Matthew 28. But the main theme of Matthew is uh, the Jews should believe that this man was truly their Messiah. And prophecy after prophecy after prophecy would point the way. Then we come to the second gospel, Mark's gospel, uh, the shortest gospel, and it's about as un-Jewish as Matthew was Jewish. And for the longest time, uh, Mark was the gospel that I used uh, and read the least. Uh, I really came to appreciate uh, Mark sort of late later in life. I had to uh, teach at a, uh, at a week-long camp, uh, a Florida college-type camp, I had to, to uh, teach, uh, I had an hour and 15-minute Bible class, uh, four days, four days in a row. And so I had an hour and 15-minute Bible class uh, to teach, and I, I was assigned the teenagers. And we had a lot of people who came to that camp uh, who were uh, from Christian homes, and we had about half the kids who came to that camp who weren't. And like, well, what am I going to teach them? What am I going to teach them? Uh, that I have four, you know, four uh, long hours, hour and, hour and 15 minutes. What am I going to teach them? And so um, as, as as I thought about that, I realized we could table read, sitting, sitting around the table, each of us in turn, uh, reading a part of Mark's gospel. And in four days, in four classes, we could read the entire gospel and we could have time for discussion of it. And one thing I found because of the direct nature of the gospel of Mark, that there's not a lot of theoretical in the gospel of Mark. It's all very concrete. It's very action-oriented and very concrete things. That there, weren't, there wouldn't be as many high-concept things that, that, that would come up and maybe uh, bog the discussion down so that we couldn't cover uh, the gospel. And so over four days, taking one-fourth of the gospel, each day, with time for some discussion by paragraph, with the teenagers, we read the gospel of Mark. so if nothing else, those kids will have will have to admit I've read a gospel I know I know the, I know the gospel story, I know what's there and so in that in doing that, and I've done it that same type of class since, I found that Mark really lends itself more than just about any other book in the bible to a direct read and to short discussions uh and uh it's really it's it's not um it, it's not mind bending theological things it's not things that uh get so esoteric and so uh so hippy dippy and so so out there uh that you you get lost in it uh, mark doesn't engage in any of that he tells you what Jesus did. He tells you directly what Jesus said. And so in Mark, we have very much these, uh, actions, actions of Jesus. And he just right from the first, he gets right to it. And, uh, he doesn't explain things much unless it's something that, uh, the audience really wouldn't understand. So he explains Jewish customs, uh, where he where uh Matthew, you know, gets deep into the weeds of Jewish scripture and answers all these questions you might have. Uh Mark he he answers the questions quickly if people wouldn't know it. So so if there's a Jewish thing, he'll explain uh he'll explain them to the audience as though they didn't understand them. Uh what the Pharisees did and who the Pharisees were, or uh some of the traditions of of the Jews. He would say that. But he doesn't. He does it directly, and then uh, he moves on. So, uh, like the beginning of the gospel, there, the beginning of of Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and just off he goes and runs. There's not forty two generations of genealogy. Uh, there's not. Uh, there's not things from his childhood. Uh, there's not all of these uh, other things. It's just we're going to go and we're going to cover what this man. Uh, did. And it's often been said, and I think this might be right, that this was uh, the gospel to the Romans. Uh, for, for the, you know, the, the Romans were not a philosophical people by and large. Great engineers, uh, not so much philosophers. That was the Greeks. Uh, the, the Romans uh, just would tackle a problem head on and, and go on. And one of the reasons to think maybe this was particularly with a Roman audience in mind is that in the original gospel in the, in the in the Greek version uh there's latin terms there's latin terms for money uh there's latin terms for distance uh there's uh explanation of geography uh, such as saying that the, the mount of olives was opposite side jerusalem uh he'll explain that at the 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 feast of unleavened bread is when the jews would kill the passover lamb and so he would tell us uh, what, uh, Romans would need to know that the Jews would have already known. You don't have to tell the Jews when, you know, when the Passover is, it, of course, it's at the end of the week of unleavened bread. So Mark tells, Mark uses Roman terms. Mark uses, uh, gives Roman explanations. Uh, and Mark also, uh, a couple of different times. And here's one of the notable ones. Mark tells us about, uh, uh uh, Gentiles interacting with Jesus. So there's a centurion, which, of course, that's a very honorable profession, uh, an honorable uh, office. Uh, centurions through the Gospels, actually, every last centurion that shows up in the New Testament is always an insightful uh, and uh, honorable man. But there's a centurion that Mark points out standing there uh, as Jesus dies, and he says, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And so the conclusion of the Roman present was that this was the son of God. And I think that's what Mark is about to, to give the the Romans who read this, uh, he's like, like, just, you know, kind of give me the cliff note version. Give me the short version. Tell me what this is about. What's this for? Mark gives us, Mark gives us the Roman version of that. And the Roman man on the scene says, yeah, this man was the son of God. And it's not just, the Romans, uh, along the way, uh, God, uh, the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. Uh, and then again at the, uh, Mount of Transfiguration in Mark nine, again, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. God gave testimony that Jesus was the son of God. Jesus gave his own testimony, uh, that he was, uh, the son of God in one of the few prophecies that's quoted again, uh, Matthew just dwelt on that, uh, uh, <clears throat> at great length, not that Mark avoids it, but he doesn't do it much. But one of the prophecies Mark quotes is, uh, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Jesus quotes the prophecy, I am, and you'll see the son of man. So Jesus, so Mark, Mark helps us to read and to understand that prophecy, even if we weren't fulfill, familiar with it. What does that son of man thing mean? We, we still ask that today, sometimes in our Bible classes. Mark was able to answer that, that is Jesus. Jesus says, I am, and you'll see this. But Jesus himself gets to say in Mark's gospel, I am the Christ, the son of the blessed one. And Mark also records for us uh, the demons uh, giving assent uh, to that. The, the demons say, you are the son of God uh, in uh, uh, Mark 3 and 11, and you are Jesus, the son of the most high God in Mark 5, 7. And that's not a point that Matthew brings up uh, because to the Jewish audience w- what value is the testimony of the demons it's you know it it'd be counter indicative if anything it'd be it'd be something to well the demons said it they must be wrong, but we do find in in mark we we find it also in luke and in, in the book of acts uh these demons, which it does appear that there was a time of demon possession and something that, you know, they they run into a a demon-possessed person in Philippi in Acts 16. It is something that the Romans of that time would have been familiar with and that these demons are, uh, you know, they're they're not benevolent creatures, but also they're not ignorant ones. And they know who Jesus is. And Jesus has power over them. And so to to a Gentile audience who would have had to deal from time to time and maybe even day to day with demons in these generations, uh, the fact that Jesus could deal with them, in a way that they never could, uh, must be uh, must be something that that they would have viewed as significant. So we find the power of Jesus over these demons and in all seventeen miracles in the Gospel of Mark, uh, but only four parables. So Matthew, a whole chapter of parables. Matthew, long long sections of parables throughout the Gospels, but Mark not the parables. Again, uh, that's not that wouldn't have been as beneficial for his audience. He, he does have four parables, not that he avoids them, but uh, uh, what you'll find normally in, in, in Mark, Jesus went here. Jesus did that, and mostly in concrete and forceful terms. And so uh, one of the words Mark particularly likes is the word immediately, immediately this and then that. So Jesus, the Son of God, and, and almost, we might say, uh, uh, the man of action. Now, then we come to Luke, and we began studying last night on Wednesday night. We began our new study of uh, the Gospel of Luke, and uh, this is in the title of that lesson uh, and in some of the notes, but we haven't really talked about it yet. But what we find in Luke, and Luke is truly through the books of Luke and Acts, uh, Luke is really a first-class historian, really surpassing Uh, most of the Roman historians of his time, and nothing like the the flowery and uh, just voluminous uh, things of Josephus, some of which were very accurate and some of which very weren't. With Luke, there's a careful detail where Jesus is presented to us not so much as the Messiah to come, not that that's not there, not... Just the, the powerful man of action uh, of Mark, which, of course, again, <clears throat> he was a powerful man of action. But Jesus stresses more, or Luke, sorry, about Jesus, uh, stresses, Luke stresses the perfection of Jesus, just the ideal nature of Jesus. And so he's a perfect man. And Luke, by giving us so many indications of time and place, Luke firmly sets him. In a historical and cultural place, that he is a a real person in these exact times, and we don't have, um, we don't have in any ancient literature, we don't have in any ancient literature the thing so much that um, uh, we like in modern history, where at nine thirty seven a.m you know on october the 8th 1978 this happened we don't have these uh, universal time stamps we don't have these time codes that say this exact thing happened at this exact time and and uh and you know these gps coordinates uh, we have a modern obsession with that that few people have ever had in historical past actually they couldn't have had those things because they didn't have timekeeping and location keeping down to the degree that we can now with our computers. And we have a, you know, a network attached clock connected to the GPS machi- uh, satellites in the sky with us in our pockets at all time. And so we think that's modern and we think that's cool and we get all obsessed about that. And, and, uh, you know, do, having things timed down to the second, uh, using sports again, I, I was watching, a a while back, it it was a hockey highlight. I'm not a hockey fan, but I saw a hockey highlight. And one of the rules of hockey is that the puck has to cross the crease or cross the line. The puck has to cross the line into the goal before the buzzer goes off. And so every sport, you know, our our sports are timed down to the 10th of a second. You watch the end of an NBA, (coughs) NBA game, and they argue about, do we put a third of a second or you know two-tenths of a second back on the clock? And did the ball leave the hand of the guy? And we've all seen the super slow-mo replays. Did the ball leave the hand of the shooter before the clock expired or after the clock expired? If he's touching the ball when the clock went off and we got a big light that goes off with it, we'll know exactly. Well, there was a guy who in hockey, he hit a slap shot from, I don't know, 30 or 40 fit, feet or meters or I don't know how what it, what the measurements in hockey are, but the guy slapped the, the the his stick against the puck. That thing went flying faster than the eye could see, and it sailed into the net as the clock expires, as the lights went off, and as the game is over. Well, they went back and by frame by frame replay of a super speed camera that they have installed in the net, looking down into the goal, they were able to determine that the puck was probably four or five inches away from the line when the clock actually expired. And this puck is moving so fast that in the slow-mo replay, the puck is partly blurred. There's a blur of the puck. You can see the main body of the puck, but you can see a little blur behind it. And uh, the referees consult for three or four minutes on a, uh, you know, uh, uh, with each other looking at a high def TV screen and they decide it's no goal. And so you just think about, uh, yeah, you know, most, uh, through most of human history, you could not have had sports like that. You just couldn't, you couldn't have a rule enforced like that because you'd need so much technology to get the timing exactly right. Well, the getting the timing exactly right in the ancient, anything ancient is really difficult. It's really difficult because there's no universal counting of time. Uh, you can think, you know, You know, the Christians for that. That's one of the gifts that the Christians give the world. We name everything. You know, we have a universal time code uh, starting from when, best estimate, when Jesus was born. And so all over the world now, we know what year it is. Through most of human history, people disagreed on what year it was. Well, it's the third year of our ruler. No, it's the 12th year of our ruler. Uh, Or the the Romans, they had a pretty decent universal time code. It was this many years since the the founding of Rome. And uh, they spread that uh, to some degree but it was never universally accepted. But Luke, Luke goes around and tells us that I investigated things about Jesus, and I carefully put them into consecutive order. So we have a chronology. We have some timestamps. So in the gospel of Luke, after a short prologue telling uh, Theophilus that uh, uh, Luke says, I, I'm sort of unsatisfied with the other Gospels, Luke 1 1, insomuch as others have taken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those were from the beginning who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order. And so there's some who think that Luke uh, is referring to Matthew and Mark at this point. And I do think Mark, excuse me, Matthew had been written for a while. Mark was most likely written just about the same time as Luke. I think he's referring to uninspired efforts that that didn't do do justice uh, to what uh, actually occurred. And Luke, uh, as we know from the book of Acts, he traveled with Paul. And Paul got arrested in Jerusalem and spent a couple of years in a jail at the, with some corrupt Roman governors down in Caesarea. And Luke, who had traveled with Paul, it appears, went around and talked to people. And he investigated, and, and he tells us uh, what people felt and what people were thinking. Now, I know inspiration can tell us that, but the most likely way to find out what a person's thinking is they tell you, I thought this, or I felt that. And Luke Luke goes around and talks to the people involved and he, he, he establishes when these events exactly took place. So Luke 1, 5, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea. So while Herod was the king, uh, the, the incident happened with Zacharias, uh, the angel announcing uh, the birth of Jesus. Or in, in Luke chapter 2, uh, we have this. In those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that a census be taken of the inhabited earth this was the first one taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And then they were proceeding to register for the census. So not the second one, but the first one. And then in Luke 3, in the 15th year, so here is a timestamp of which we can all agree the exact year, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch in the region of Iteria and Trachinosis, and Licinius was the tetrarch of Abilene. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And so this uh, events of the, uh, you know, 30 years before of the birth of John, the birth of Jesus, were given some time indication. But when the, when the real gospel work starts, it's Caesar Tiberius. It's governor uh, uh, Pontius Pilate. It's Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee. And this other guy, his other brother, Tetrarch in Iteria and Trachinosis. It's Licinius, the Tetrarch of Abilene, the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Seven, seven chronological markers. Seven markers of the date. And so this is in real time and this is in real place. Uh, William Barclay said about this, he says, here is a man who is writing with care and who will be as accurate as possible for him to be. And so with care and accuracy, and we know he was a physician and he'll mention, you know, the the great fever that people have, or uh, he will uh, over and over give a bit more medical detail than others. Matthew, excuse me, Luke is going to tell us about here is Jesus, and we're going to find him to be perfect. He's going to be the perfect man. He's not just the, like, you know, Matthew started with 42 generations to go back to David. Luke does that, and then he spends a few more generations to go all the way back to Adam. So here is this, the man connected to us all. And so he's not just the great descendant of Abraham. He's the great descendant of us all, tying us all together. And so he tells us of his birth. He tells us of his childhood. He tells us of uh, his nature, of his uh, weeping for Jerusalem, for the destruction that would come there. You know, Matthew emphasizes the, the prophetic aspect. Uh, Luke emphasizes the human aspect. And so uh, if we find Jesus in Luke's gospel constantly in in care for the poor in in care for the injured uh the 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 merciful miracles of Jesus are stressed more so in Luke than the other gospels and here's a doctor who who knows I, I couldn't have done that I couldn't have helped that this this person had uh you know his right hand withered or they were bent in this way or uh, so he'll give the details I, I wonder how many of the healed that uh, Luke may have actually uh, spoken to uh, himself. Uh, Luke records 20 of the miracles, again, emphasizing the, the merciful aspect of the miracles uh, uh, that, uh, that we see. And so uh, there's six miracles that the other Gospels don't record that only Luke records. Six different, go- six different miracles, only Luke puts them in. We only have about thirty-five specific miracles of Jesus recorded, and almost twenty percent of those, Luke is the only recorder for us. And so this this was to Luke the physician, uh, a, a truly telling thing, and one that uh, uh, he saw uh, worthy of, of uh, you know of, of recording and of informing. Also, Luke has special emphasis on the prayers of Jesus. All the gospels tell us that he prayed. But 15 different times uh, we are told in, that uh, Jesus prayed. Four of these are in all the Gospels or on, in the synoptics. 11 of them are only in Luke. So only, in, only Luke records 11 different specific times of Jesus' prayer. And so Luke, the Gentile, tells us in a very Gentile way, uh, that that you know Jesus really does care for us. He cared for people. Uh, yes, he was a Jew in Palestine, and ever, most everybody he healed uh, and dealt with they they were they were Jews. But he cared for the outcast. Uh, he uh, Luke sp- especially mentions interaction with women, uh, interactions with the poor, interactions with others that were uh, overlooked by society. And so Luke in, uh, tells us the the the, the perfect man. In this reality of time and space, Luke emphasizes and tells us of him. So, uh, and as I mentioned last night in our Luke study, a fact I did not know until preparing for Luke's study last night, I didn't even know in this study, when I first taught it and first studied it, that Luke is the longest of any of the New Testament books. And then second longest is Acts. And so this Gentile who researched these things, uh, for which, you know, you get over to Acts 14 or so, Luke is present. And Luke becomes the great com- companion of the apostle Paul, but uh, for the apostle to the Gentiles. So uh, uh, Luke, the companion of Paul, the Gentile gets to write the longest of the Gospels and has so many details uh, that not found in the others. All right, so the, the first three Gospels, again, synoptic, viewing together, uh, each telling basically the same story in the same order, but with very different audiences and different uh, things emphasized uh, as is fitting to uh, those various differences. But then we come to the fourth gospel, which compared to the others at times just seems an alien thing. It's so different in its thought. It's so different in its uh, in its main concern uh, of the things that it presents. Uh, of course, uh they all, like um, like Mark, you know, Mark from the start, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and Luke showing us this perfect one who's the Son of God. Well, they're not John is no different in that, in that uh he tells us, uh, you know, these things I'm recording so that you might believe. And so John specifically tells us he's so it's so that we might believe. I really think that Mark pretty well implied that when he said, uh, you know, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. But John specifically states that. But aside from that, that they they all are for this great purpose that we might believe. John explicitly saying that. The way they go about doing it is so different. And John more different than the others. So again, Matthew from the Jewish perspective and the um, the prophecies, Mark from the perspective of look at what this man did, his actions and his miracles. Uh, And then Luke, his great concern and his great power that is shown in these interactions with the people, the common people. Well, then John. Uh, Then John, who almost seems to avoid what the other gospels covered well. There's very few things of which the other gospels, I would have thought, hey, they covered that and John covers it too. The feeding of the 5,000 might be about the only place where, uh, you know, that, that's, I, I thought I would have known about that pretty well, but John, John covers it as well. John barely covers what the others cover and John doesn't. Uh, and I do think John's pretty well in order, but Don, John doesn't try to go through a consecutive order of all the things that were done. Uh, John, uh, well, he does that thing that, um, you really can't do, uh, but it's, it's the, it's the, um, uh, it's the, the trope of, of every kind of, of, of modern or, or, or near modern, um, science fiction things or, or shows about evidences and, you know, all these cop shows, there's the, the they'll have a fuzzy picture of a thing. And one of the main characters will tell the, the tech nerd they're sitting at the computer. Uh, they'll say, zoom in and enhance. Well, any of us who've worked with photos know if we, we can, it, the more we zoom in, the fuzzier it gets. We can either enhance it or we can zoom in. Take your pick. We can't do both. Uh, maybe one day the computers will do that. But at least in science fiction and all these, you know, evidence-based uh, cop shows, they zoom in and enhance all the time. Well, that's what John's gospel does, basically. John's gospel takes a few things from the life of Christ, and he zooms in, and then he enhances them. And so what John covers, John covers in a detail that the others don't but he doesn't cover all that many things. So half the book is the last week of Christ. And in the, the sessions before the last half of the book, there's very often just you know a few things covered in each chapter. So there's the gathering of some of the apostles in chapter one. There's a little bit of John's work, as John declares in the, the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And there's a few of the disciples who come up and we're told about Jesus' early conversations with them. Then we go to chapter two, and we get the miracle of the uh water to wine at the wedding feast. Other gospels, no mention of that whatsoever. The other gospels all talk about Jesus then going out to the wilderness. John doesn't mention it. It's already been covered. Everybody knows that story. John has John has really there nothing to add. Chapter three, for the, the long conversation with Nicodemus early on in the ministry not not in any other gospel not even not even in so go, just go through over and over the, the the healing of the blind man in John 9 the raising of Lazarus in John 11 the uh, the lengthy time spent on Jesus washing the feet of the disciples in John 13 at the last supper and so John enhances our view of a few places now just a quick aside again on authorship and why we can have great confidence in the authorship of these things. In John's gospel, it's uh, said, it does not say anywhere. John uh, skeptics, a few believers too. a few believers go with, uh, um, some, uh, a non, uh, you know, non customary or minority views. Nearly everybody believes that John the Apostle wrote this. But because he only calls himself uh, the disciple whom Jesus loves, there's some who think that maybe John didn't write this. Now, if John is not the disciple whom Jesus loves in the Gospel of John, then it's really odd that John uh, the Apostle, who is so prominent in the other Gospels, doesn't get mentioned in this Gospel. Because if John is not that disciple whom Jesus loves, John's nowhere else in here. But for some reason there's a there's a choice of a pseudonym. There's a choice of an identifying uh phrase uh, for the, the for the name, but not the actual name. The best explanation is I believe that it's for the sake of security and protection that John was written at a time when there was still Jewish persecution of brethren. That it's written at a time where and it's not just John, there's a couple other folks who are not identified either, but from the other Gospels, we have a real good idea who they are. And so there's some some intentional non-identification that happens in John's Gospel. And if this were written in the area around Jerusalem, if this were written while the Jewish society still existed before AD 70, and there was a threat, that would make a lot of sense. It's often said by the skeptics that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John— these names associated, prominent names associated with Jesus, these were attached to the Gospels by Christians later to give them credibility. But as a matter of fact, except for the Gospel of Luke, Luke isn't a prominent person at all. And in the Gospels, is Matthew a prominent person at all? Matthew's not a prominent person at all. The the only one who's prominent of the names of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The only prominent name among them is John, and his name doesn't appear in the gospel. Now, it's exact opposite of what the skeptics say. There's no, there's no borrowing of prominent names to attach them to gospels, to give these gospels that these later disciples have assembled and collected and, and amplified credibility. There's none of that. As a matter of fact, these would be minor names except for the fact they're in the gospel. Who was Mark? There's precious little about John Mark in the Bible. And and some of it's not good. We have his redemption story. We have his we have his story of growth and maturity. Luke is only mentioned three times in the scripture by name. And we we would we if it weren't for the gospel of Luke, uh, and if it weren't for uh being able to piece together by pronouns, who was with Paul when, we would just think, well, here was a guy who's a doctor. Paul happened to have a friend who was a doctor. You know, you read, Acts, uh, read Romans 16. There's a number of people there we'd like to know more about. If it weren't for putting his name on the gospel of Luke, Luke would be the same thing. Matthew's the only, uh, only apostle that's somewhat prominent who has his name attached directly from the start. John doesn't have his name. Now, as soon as it was safe to do so, as soon as Jerusalem was destroyed, as soon as that that, uh, Jewish society no longer functioned, uh, then, and also, right about the same time, a number of these men were martyred. And once you martyr them, what more can you do to them? So right about the time that there's no more harm can befall these men than has already, already fell upon them, and about the same time that that persecuting Uh, possibility from Jerusalem ceases, all the Christians say, these are the guys that wrote the books. And again, with John, you read John and you can just picture yourself walking in and around and through Jerusalem. And if this book were written after AD 70, especially long after AD 70, wouldn't there have been any kind of mention of that this is where this used to be, but now it's not because it's gone? Wouldn't there be any kind of nostalgia? Wouldn't there be any kind of, you know? Morning, Wouldn't there be any kind of missing Jerusalem? But you read the Gospels, Jerusalem, J- Jerusalem's judgment is only mentioned as predictive. It's only mentioned as coming. It's only mentioned in prophecy. It's never mentioned as accomplished fact. I think all these books were written before AD 70. I don't think there's any doubt. It, it, the first time Jerusalem was destroyed, two different prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, one in Jerusalem and, and then the environs around after it was destroyed, and one in captivity, both write at great length, justifying and vindicating and explaining why God caused this judgment to come. But the New Testament doesn't have anything at all of a hint of a destroyed Jerusalem. It's prophesied and hinted in a number of places but there is no looking back facts. So I, I think all of these have early dates, much earlier than the skeptics give them. Matthew may have been written uh, just only 10 years or so after uh, the, the the ministry of Christ. John could have been written at any time. It's generally assumed that John waited till the other gospels were written, and then he filled in some details, not covering what the others had covered. I guess that may be possibly so. But it sure seems like he's just writing on a different level. He's writing in a a different way than than the others. Uh, So he tells us about Jesus as God among us. He tells us about Jesus, the divine one. There's no birth story in John. No, we start with Jesus in eternity. We start with Jesus, the logos, the great idea uh, of God. We start uh, with him uh, coming to us, uh, as, uh, one who is the, the true light, John 1, 9, which came to the world and enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him. The world didn't know him. It, we're, we're John, John, John's on a different level here. Uh, it it's, it's not even Jesus, the man who did these things. It's Jesus, the true light, the true divine nature, uh, come, in the flesh he came to his own his own received him not but here's the great uh hope to them to those who received him he gave to them the right to be children of god verse 12 of john 1 even those who believe in his name who are not born of blood nor the will of the flesh nor the will of man but of god and the word became flesh and dwelt among us we beheld his glory Glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so John gives us the the seven I am's of Jesus that the others don't. I'm the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, the true vine, and the I am. And so John gives us not a systematic look, a consecutive look, at this perfect life of Christ. But he tells us of the great nature of Christ. And so the book concludes with Thomas uh, seeing uh, Jesus and saying, you know, my Lord and my God. Yet having said that, it's also interesting. It's from the gospel of John. We know the ministry of Jesus lasted about three and a half years. Because John is the one who records for us four Passovers. John doesn't give us many time marks, but he tells us every time Jesus shows up to a Passover, and he showed up to four of them. And so that's you know from, that's about three, about three and a half years uh, in all because it's the last one he's killed. So uh, these Gospels all fit together. The, these Gospels all have a marvelous complementary nature uh, to each other. And, and they're all so very, very different. But what we find is, I think, in it the grace of God to speak to different kind of people and to different kind of minds and to speak to us at different times. In my own personal uh, journey of studying these and growth, as I say, I really started off with uh, Matthew. Matthew's where I started. I, I, the concrete nature of this prophecy fulfilled here and, and the, the logical, almost laying out a legal argument type nature of, of the gospel of Matthew. Then for other purposes, other times, the Gospel of Mark, especially when I need to be to teach people who need to know the basics, I take them to Mark. But over the the intervening years, I, I think most of the time, most of the time, my favorite has probably uh, been uh, Luke, uh, that that perfect that perfect man presented to us uh, by by Luke. Uh, but then there's a few chapters, and maybe it's just because my own immaturity still at this point there's a few times where the, the, there's some chapters of John where I just need that story. I need to know that. And so John 11, the, the, the raising of Lazarus uh, or, or sometimes John 13, uh, the, the, the washing of the disciples feet or, you know, John three, the story of Nicodemus. John as a whole still has never been my favorite gospel but there's times when a gospel, when a chapter of john one of those you know one of those 20 or so stories that john tells us that's that's what i needed so i think it's such a blessing that we have these four different views of 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 jesus presenting it presenting it to uh, to us in various ways and sometimes we need one and sometimes we need another and so we are so thankful that we have this you know quadraphonic uh uh view of Jesus, so we think about how much more when we see your, you know, stereoscopic vision when we can we get depth perception because we have two eyes instead of one. Or a lot of times we get stereo sound, uh, and we, how much more we can appreciate stereo sound when we get to listen to slightly different, you know, arrangements and, and slightly different sounds coming from uh, into both ears at once through through two different speakers. But now we have you know in our home theater systems and the and the modern theaters we have surround sound. And we think when it's really done well, how much more we get from surround sound than even from stereo and definitely from mono. So we have our surround sound, as it were, gospels, the quadraphonic sound, the, the four reports from those who were witnesses and present to the most amazing things, so that in reading their accounts, we might believe. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at malvainchurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.